So I get a lot of, well, I don't get a lot of spam email, but I get spam email, and I typically um, delete it. But I got one about a month ago, in fact, approximately 30 days ago, that from Netflix that said, hey, we want to give you another free month, because I tried it for a month and then didn't want to pay for it. And they're like, we're giving you another free month. And so I jumped on it, and I re-signed up again for one reason, The Office. It has all nine seasons of The Office on it. I love um, The Office. My wife and I have been trying to, in our free month, get through all nine seasons, and we failed miserably, okay? We're on, like, episode four of season four, which is still respectable, okay? Like, you can, we're like hardcore couch potatoes, but not super hardcore couch potatoes. Um, but we've been working through it, and one thing I love about The Office, um, and really what sustained The Office after Steve Carell left, was the Jim-Dwight relationship. Um, the relationship between Jim and Dwight. And Jim is always trying to con Dwight into believing something. And he always goes out of his way um, to prove that what Jim is saying, that whatever Jim's prank is, is the truth. And you see this whether it's that Jim is telekinetic or that he's a vampire or that Thursday is actually Friday. Um, Jim's goal is not simply to, to tell um, Dwight something, but it's to go out of his way to give proofs of something that will then cause Dwight to do uh, silly and dumb Things. The interesting thing, though, about Dwight is that what we see about Dwight is he's more apt to believe Jim's truths that are always making him the butt of a joke than he is to believe, like, socially normal truths. And, and, and as we watch the show, that's what makes Dwight Dwight. He's unbelievable in all that he does, right? He thinks the world's being ran by robots and going to be conquered by aliens someday, but he also doesn't think that he can get sick because he's not weak. Um, and so there's these like seeming things where what is true he doesn't believe, um, but what isn't true he does believe. And Dwight's truth, for Dwight's truth, his truth, regardless of the proofs offered, ultimately comes down to his desire to believe that truth. If Dwight desires to believe something, he will believe it is true. If he doesn't desire it to be true, he'll will himself to a place where it's not true. And this is largely true of our culture today. And the paradox of truth or the paradox of proof is that as a culture, we still want it. We still want truth. We still want proof. But at the same time, we don't want it. At the same time, truth and proof have both become subjective. They've become relative. What's true for you may not necessarily be true for me. And tonight, we're going to see Jesus presenting three truths, three proofs of his validity. And we're going to see in this reasons, as those of you who've watched The Office, reasons we see Dwight believing or not believing things. We're going to see similar reasons as to why people believe or don't believe the truth claims of Jesus. And today we're going to be cover basically um, the last part of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 in Mark. And one line we'll see in this story, it comes after in the passage Austin just read, when Jesus calms the storm, and everyone stops and they said, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? And in true Markian fashion, as we're in the gospel of Mark, Mark is going to answer that question tonight, not by telling us who Jesus is, but by showing us who Jesus is. Mark is going to answer that question that the disciples posed and that the other boaters posed at the beginning of this, uh, this section of text. And he's going to answer that for us by looking at what Jesus has done. We're going, to look at a lot of a we're going to look at a lot of text tonight in Scripture. It's a big passage. Um, so what I've done is, is, is I've summed it up to create kind of an outline or an order um, that we're going to go through this. Um, just kind of a sentence, and that sentence is this. 
is that Jesus is the awesome Lord. And I don't use awesome like in a Bill and Ted way. Like, man, righteous, awesome. Like awesome in the old English way, like something which induces awe, which is dripping with might or power um, that, that's, that's solid and thuddy. Um, that's a word I just made up. Okay, Not hollow. You strike it and it gives a good solid thud. Um, it worked in my head. Uh, you can tweet it later. Uh, Jesus is the awesome Lord over the sea, over Satan, and over our terminal state of death. Jesus is the awesome Lord over the sea, over, the, over Satan, and over our terminal state of death. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we are grateful for uh, this passage in Mark. We're grateful for um, a Jesus who is sometimes hard to fully understand, but we thank you that you've given us ways in which we can begin to understand him both through word and through action. Um, and Lord, as we encounter this tonight, Lord, may we ourselves be able to give a better answer um, to the question of who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him. Lord, we pray that you bless the word that's about to be spoken. Um, we pray that you make uh, me a understandable medium, but we also pray that you grant us hearts to understand and give us ears to hear. Um, as Jesus has ended his parables the last few weeks, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So Lord, we pray that we hear tonight. Pray this in your name. Amen. So um, the first proof which, which, which Jesus gives us in our passage tonight is that Jesus is the awesome Lord over the sea. And here's the story. Um, it's the story that Austin just read in Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, so this, actually, if you look in your Bibles, we see um, the beginning of chapter 4. He began to teach uh, uh, beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got in a boat, sat in it on the sea, and the crowd was beside the sea. And so this is the same day. So all these parables we saw being preached, this is the end of that day. And so Mark is emphasizing that on that day, when evening had come, he, that's Jesus, said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Why, why is Mark saying that? Just as he was. This guy's been teaching all day long and been hounded by the crowds. Jesus is tired, just as he was. Hungry, tired, evening time. Um, and a great wind, or just as he was, and other boats were with him. So it's not just the disciples, but there's a crowd on the shore and also a crowd on the sea, which is following Jesus. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Sarah and I once watched this documentary on, the, I think it was the 2006, um, the, the great tsunami that went through the South Pacific and wiped out um, a large majority of those islands. And, and we were watching it. Um, and there's this, this interesting thing because you see this, they're on these beautiful islands in the South Pacific and you see these tropical jungles, these dense, lush kind of wild areas, but then like it pans out and at the base of this mountain is this five-star resort in the middle of it 
where trees have been cleared and the landscape is immaculate and the buildings are pristine and the paths are lined with palm trees and made out of like seashells and there's that beach where no rock is on it. They've taken all the rocks out and it's white sand beaches and they made these sea walls which have natural places for you to go and swim and snorkel. And so you see that this this beautiful man-sustained paradise It's been groomed, it's been cropped, it's been pruned and presented. But the irony is then you see the the videos, and that was the most stunning thing of this documentary. You see see the videos of these tsunami waves starting to come in, and the water is brown, and it's nasty, and it's destructive, and it wipes out the pretty palm trees and tears up the grass and breaks down all of the building. Everything that man had manicured was washed away by the sea. That's because God has given us as humans, uh, one of the first commands we got is, is subdue the earth and fill it. We can manicure lawns. We can plant trees. We can grow gardens. We can build buildings. But man has no control over the sea. He can't. I can plow land. I could tame land. I could sow land. But I cannot tame the sea. I could ride the sea. But I can't control the weather. I can't control the waves. I can't control the currents. And in fact, after the fall, we see in Genesis 3, sin is introduced. And after the fall, the Hebrew word for sea um, or ocean is used primarily in the Old Testament as a sign of tumultuous chaos. As this vast, untamable place where it's uncertain, it's unclear, there's chaos, and it's dangerous. And man, in the Old Testament, looking at the sea, is always in a position of what can we do with this sea? We're unable to tame it. We are unable to handle it. We're unable to be lords over it. But in the Old Testament, we do see some interesting passages about the sea. So on one hand, there's this heavyweight. Whenever humans interact with sea, it's always in terms of uncertainty and danger. But look at Psalm 95, verses 3 through 4. 3 through 5. For the Lord is a great God and king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountain are his, all, are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. And so we see here that as far as man is dwindled compared to the sea, as far as man has zero control over the sea, God is Lord of the sea. God has author's rights over the sea. God formed the sea. God created the sea. God sustains the sea. God lords over it. Those of you who are on the GCF retreat, we saw Ryan talk about um, creator's rights. God has creator's rights over the sea. But there's something interesting that happens, and it happens in Psalm 89. And so Psalm 89, um, it's a maskil of Ethan the Ezraite. Um, so if any of you are looking for child names, you could use Ezraite. It's there for you. Um, but what it is, is, is Ethan, for short, uh, Ethan, my man, is in Psalm 89, he's writing a psalm of the Lord's faithfulness to the throne of David. And we see that in verses 3 through 4. You have said, speaking to God, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And so that's Ethan speaking to God, but then we see later God speaking starting in verse 25. My, so this is God. My faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him. So future. So God's making a forthcoming prophecy here. God's saying this is going to happen in the future. My faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him 
In my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the river. And so here we see this really weird thing, this really subtle thing that I hadn't really noticed until I was looking at this text where in Psalm 89, God is saying someone from the line of David is going to set his hand on the sea. Someone from the line of David, I'm going to put my hand on and bless, and he will have his hand on the sea and his hand on the river. And in the Old Testament, we never see this. Moses, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, he parted the Red Sea, but did Moses part it? No, Moses is panicking at the base of the Red Sea. I can't control Pharaoh's army here, sea here, die in the sea, die in the army. What are we going to do? He appeals to God, and God parts the sea. Why? God's the only one who has authority over the sea. Jonah the prophet was in a boat in a similar situation. We see Jesus, in fact, a very, um, almost a foreshadowing of what's happening with Jesus. And this great storm arises, and Jonah calms the sea, but what does he have to do? He has to jump in it. He basically sacrifices himself to the sea, and God graciously saves Jonah from that. But Jonah didn't have control over the sea. Jonah was just hoping that maybe this would work. He, he skipped a lot of like, steps he could have done, like, hey, guys, maybe we should pray or repent. He's like, no, I'm jumping. I'm, I'm out of here. This will work, I promise you. Jonah didn't have that ability, but Jesus calms the sea in this passage. That's because Jesus is the true king from the line of David, the one who Jesus, God blessed with steadfastness and faithfulness, the one who God appointed to set his hand on the sea and have creative rights over it. He is greater than David. He is greater than Jonah. He's greater than all the Old Testament prophecies. Why? Because Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is God. Jesus has an ability, unlike any other man of this world, to come and bring peace to an area which was untamable by man. Jesus brings peace in a way and in places only God can bring peace. And in saying here that Jesus is Lord of the sea, it's not simply that Jesus is Poseidon who, who reigns over the sea, but it's that in taming the sea to this Jewish audience, Jesus knew he was making a statement that I am Lord and creator over all things, and that I alone, as God, have power to rule over the sea. And that's why we see the disciples and boaters, and I love this. So don't think, Mark goes out of his way to say it's not just the disciples. So in this first story, when you hear people talking, it's not just the 12 disciples who are with Jesus. There are other people on the boats. In fact, the archaeologists have found boats in the Sea of Galilee, and a typical boat would fit about 15 people. So there are probably even more people on Jesus' boat during this um, event. And the disciples respond to this, and you know what they say is, hey, how can Jesus calm the storms in my life? Right? What kind of storms am I going through that Jesus can calm? No, it's not about them. <laughs> They're like, who is this man? In, in Matthew, the, the Greek word used is actually, what manner of man, what kind of man, what sort of man is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Because no man has ever had authority over the sea like this man. And this question is going to be answered. Who is this man? And it's going to be answered by an unlikely person in an unlikely way. And we see that in the next passage um, in Mark. And secondly, what we're going to look at is Jesus is the awesome Lord over Satan. So this is next. Um, and so they're on the boat. He calms the storm. And we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea. So there was no break in between. Jesus calmed the storm. They get to where they're going. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. 
And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day he was among the tombs, and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. So do you see here, these, as we read that, do you see these tones of bondage and violence and oppression that was happening? Do you see that the helplessness of this situation? Right? Immediately, Jesus, when he gets across, he just calmed a storm, okay? And immediately he's hit by something. And you have to imagine, because the people on this side of the lake, they know this guy. They don't like him. They've tried to bind him. They've tried to harness him. And finally, they're just like, hey, go live in the tombs in the spookiest place ever, okay? And in church, Halloween is tomorrow. And so some of you will probably watch some sort of horror movie. And you always see that thing where you see the first guy go into the house where the bad man is at. And you're just like, that guy's a goner. Like, you know it. He's, he's going in. He's not coming out. And you can imagine like these local pig farmers, which we'll see, sitting there seeing Jesus come out, and they see monster man of the tombs just sprinting towards them, and they're like, well, we lost another Jew. <laughs> it's like, there he goes, he's a goner, right? No one has been able to bind this man. He breaks, sh- he shatters metal shackles. This is a monster living among the tombs. He lives where dead people are. It's spooky, eerie, Halloween-y stuff. And he runs towards Jesus. And now we see this conflict of this man who is violent towards himself, not wanted in society, living among the dead, unbindable by man, sprinting full on towards Jesus. And we have this confrontation set up. Picking up again in verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me? In my mind, that's how he talks. What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torture me. For he, that's Jesus, was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they, and they begged him, they being the legion of demons, begged him, saying, send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs in the herd, numbering about 2,000, and the herd uh, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And so again, for those of you Bible nerds, we see the very sea that Jesus just claimed, claiming the demons that were opposed to Jesus. So that's for the Bible nerds. Anyway, um, back to this. In in this passage, we see that this man is not, because we've seen Jesus in the book of Mark heal a demon-possessed man. We've seen that. And here we see a man who is unbindable by man. Why? Because he's got 2,000 evil spirits living inside of him. 2,000 of them. And I was thinking about this today, because what we know about Satan is that he's a fallen angel. That's what we know about Satan, okay? And we know that Satan, as he fell, deceived other angels to go with him. So Satan is just a first among equals. Satan doesn't have any special power that these other evil spirits don't. God has just given Satan kind of the badge of like, yeah, you're the leader of this fallen thing that I'm just going to come back and destroy later. And so Jesus just had the power to cast out 2,000 demons. That's stronger 
than anything we could ever imagine. 2,000 demons, and he did so with a word. And I love how the demons begged Jesus, right? They needed his permission to do anything. It says they begged for Jesus' permission not to be sent out of the country, but to be sent into the pigs. And why did they do that? Because they thought maybe by going to the pigs, they would escape the wrath of Jesus. Because word's getting around like demon land, right? Because demons, Jesus has done this a few times now, and so these demons are like, hey, we get the picture. Jesus is our enemy, okay? Um, they're like, hey, maybe if we can go into these pigs. Jews hate pigs, right? They don't eat bacon. They don't care. Maybe we can avoid them. But, but what just happened is they could not escape the wrath of Jesus. Jesus is not gracious to these demons by sending them into the pigs. What Jesus is saying is that no matter how you beg and plead, and no matter what way I do it, you will be destroyed by me. Because I am Lord over Satan. The story continues in verse 14. The herdsmen fled. That would be a natural thing. After all of this, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there. So he's known for this oppression, who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. You see, this is where we see that awesome Lord title of Jesus coming in here. And actually in the book of Mark, this is the first time Jesus uses the title of Lord and refers it to himself. And we see that this isn't something that went wrong and just like, don't do that, because the man went away and told him what Jesus did. And Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm not God, don't say that. Jesus saying, tell him what the Lord did. Tell him what I did. Tell him what God has done. And everyone marveled at this awesome Lord. Jesus left. Jesus and his disciples, as we're seeing, are going back to the other side of the lake because the angry pig farmers are mad that their pigs are all dead. And so Jesus is leaving, and yet his fame is spreading through what he's done. Why? Because he just did something that no man could do. And yet this is something we shouldn't be surprised at. This is a proof of what Jesus already told us he came to do in the, in the book of Mark. Look back at verse, chapter 3, verse 36. Jesus, this is when the, the Pharisees made the mistake of calling Jesus Satan. Don't do that. Um, and starting in verse 26... Jesus says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's coming to an end, dummies. Um, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. You see, Mark isn't just saying bind because he doesn't have a better word. Mark is saying that no one can bind this demon because he's tying it to the fact that the stronger man has come. Jesus has come to bind which couldn't be bound by man. Jesus has come to free from oppression that man could not free themselves from. Jesus has proven that not even the most powerful spiritual forces on earth can compare to his power. Unbelief, violence, demonic forces, Satan himself are all pawns compared to the God-man, Jesus Christ. He rules over them. He reigns over them. They are a trifle before him. 
This battle that, and you hear this in, in Christian, and you hear it in the Bible, and so I don't want to make light of it, but this idea that there are, there's this war going on between good and evil. And it's like the Harry Potter series where we're longing, it looks like evil has the upper hand, and then it looks like good has the upper hand, and we have to wait for like seven books to see the resolution. It's not a fair fight. It is not a fair fight for Jesus to defeat Satan and, and the devil. Jesus has come, and Jesus has dominated them already in our day. Jesus is Lord over Satan. And the final proof Jesus gives is that Jesus is the awesome Lord over our terminal state death. Terminal meaning we can't escape it and we will die from it. Our terminal state death. This is a great story um, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus has crossed again in the boat to the other side, you have to imagine what the disciples are thinking now. They go across the lake and almost die. They get over to the other side and almost die. And they're just like, let's just head back this way. Um, and so now they take off over there, like crossing their fingers that like a sea monster doesn't come out and eat them. And Jesus has to like cut off the head or something. Um, and, uh, and they get to the other side. And a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And Jesus went with him. And so Jesus, he escapes the storm and he conquers the demon and he comes back and immediately he's met with this man who and he's presented immediately with another problem of life this side of heaven not only do we have physical realities of storms not only do we have spiritual realities of demons but we have health realities that eat away at our lives and this man says he falls at jesus's feet and says i know you can do it come and touch my daughter my dying little daughter so that she may live. And I love that line, and Jesus went with him. Jesus has put his business to a business of restoration. And so Jesus goes, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So just this a great crowd and throngs. Mark, again, he's always talking about how big the crowds are. It's pressing against Jesus. It's an obstacle for Jesus to get where he's going. And there was a woman in this crowd who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under physicians and had spent all she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She'd heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt it in her body that she was healed of her disease. And so Jesus is pressing his way through the crowd, and there's this, we're starting to see desperate people coming to Jesus. We saw it a few weeks ago where the four friends lowered their paralytic through the roof out of desperation, knowing that Jesus alone heals. We just saw Jairus go and present his claim to Jesus, saying, you alone can heal. And this woman who has spent all of her money and all of her time and every source of energy and every resource man had given her, she spent it trying to cure this terminal thing that she has had for 12 years and to no avail. And in this, they use the word, not that she did this, but that she suffered in this. She was suffering in her current state and she goes and she says, this Jesus can do something. And her faith is so strong that it's not even like, if I could talk to him and he could do this magical incantation for me and pull out his magic wand, I can be healed. She's like, if I could just touch his clothes. 
I know I'll be healed. And so there she is in all of her infirmities, in all of her weakness. You could just see this weak, frail woman pushing her way through the crowd and just reaches out and touches the cloak of Jesus. And she feels in her body, she feels an instantaneous. When I get healed from a cold, I'm not sitting there and then all of a sudden it's like, well, I'm, ready. I'm good to go. Um, but, but, but this lady, she touches Jesus and immediately she knows she is healed. Can you imagine her joy? Can you imagine the, the, like, what is this woman doing in the crowd now? Is she speechless? Is she jumping up and down? How can a person who has had this diagnosis and now been healed by the man her hope was set towards, how would she respond to this? I would imagine pretty happily. But she gets one of the greatest sucker punches of her life here. One of those things that just takes your breath away. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? I took a class here once with uh, Gene Burns. Have any of you had classes with Gene Burns in here? Okay. Gene. Love Gene. Um, uh, it was an 8 o'clock class in the morning, and so me and my buddy would sit in the front um, and so that we wouldn't fall asleep because he's a slightly terrifying man. And uh, uh, he has one rule on his tests, write your name legibly. And he gives this big lecture. When tests come, he says, write your name legibly on this test. You're in college. If you want to score, write your name legibly. And so we take our tests, and we come back a week later when he's returning the tests, and we're sitting right where Logan and Austin are, and he holds up this test. Whose test is this? And it's my buddies <laughs> sitting in the front row. And he just shrivels and he's like, that's my test. <laughs> but in front of everybody, he, he had committed a foul in Gene Burns' book. And you can't read his handwriting. So I'm with Gene on this. But can you imagine? That's a professor who I'm not even in that major. It's a gen ed. But this man who just healed you. This man of ultimate worth, who you had almost just robbed of his power, turned to her in the midst of her joy and says, who touched me? And we could see the tension and terror in this woman's heart. And, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Like, Jesus, who, everybody's touching you. But this woman was touched in a different way. And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman knowing what had happened, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. Man, she is in a position of utter surrender before this God. Terrified, shaking, but healed. But look at the mercy of our Lord. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And so we have this, this instance, this beautiful picture of, of redemption and healing and grace and mercy and Jesus' love. And while this is happening, while he is still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Man, this is like, as a parent, this is the gut punch of gut punches. 
There's this beautiful scene going on, this healing, this mercy, this love that's happening. And Jairus' servant comes and he says, your daughter is dead. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing Jesus can do. Why trouble him anymore? His daughter had exceeded the state of this woman. This woman had an awful disease but was still alive. And now this daughter has been a victim of a permanent disease. What can anyone do with your daughter, Jairus? The story goes on. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Why? Because the child's not sleeping. Jesus knows that. But what Jesus is doing is Jesus is using language to calm people so that Jesus can do what Jesus came to do. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and they went where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, this dead, limp little girl, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Can you imagine as a parent that tension? The only hope you have remaining comes in and picks up the hand of your dead little girl. And he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And you see your daughter, who you love, immediately get up and begin walking around. Why? Because she's 12 years old. She doesn't want to be in bed. Mark says that. Yeah, she's doing what 12-year-old girls do, running around. She gets up out of bed, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus, Jesus is great. He heals you, and he's like, hey, let's eat. You've been dead for a while. Let's have some pretzels. But what a great work of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus not only has power over earth and Satan, but death is Jesus' fool. Death may think that it has laid claim to a person, but the powerful working of Jesus will always overcome the grave if God so chooses to tell that person to arise, to tell that person to wake from the dead. And what Jesus signified physically with this girl is something that's readily available eternally for all those whom Jesus spiritually heals. For all those who are in Christ Jesus, we will die, but we will live. The same faith that brought this girl from the dead is the same faith which brings us up from our own spiritual grave. And spiritually, the Bible describes us as dead, as deceased. But through Christ, he brings life to our spiritual deadness. He breathes into us new life. He calls us from the grave and enables us to live for him. We have nothing to fear, not even death. Why? Because Jesus is Lord over it. Jesus is the God of all things, and Jesus is calling you to rise out of your grave and follow him, and the only person capable of bringing you life is Jesus. Jairus couldn't help his daughter. His servants couldn't help his daughter. His daughter couldn't help herself because she was dead. 
the only person who can help dead people is the one who lords over it, Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus spoke the words of life. No one could have changed the state of that girl, but Jesus did. Jesus is capable. So here we see three proofs of Jesus' power. He's Lord over the untamable sea. He's Lord over, over the unbindable man. He's Lord over the most terminal disease, death itself. Three powerful proofs. And typically, when someone proves something to you, what do you do? You believe in it. And yet, as we'll see more next week, the typical response to Jesus' miracles in the gospel is not belief, but unbelief. Why? Why? I mean, in the age of modernity, when, when, when our parents grew up and went to school, truth claims were undeniable. If someone were, were able to prove something is true, you just had to believe it. And so what those people would do who disagreed with the truth is they would attract the, or attack the validity of that truth. And so people who don't want to see Jesus as Lord over Satan, people who don't want to see Jesus as God incarnate would then come to the Bible, which makes clear truth statements, not only in word, but also in action, as we just saw, and say, well, these stories aren't very true. Right? There's the, the, the texts that we have in the Greek and language, uh, they throw out all these reasons trying to undermine the Bible so that they could say, no, it's, it's not true. We don't have to believe it. And, but in today's postmodern world, people aren't attacking the sources as much. In all my years of ministry, I have yet to see one person come and say, I don't believe the Bible because of some source document. But what people say is, that's good for you. You find that true? That's good. I, I, I'm, I'm happy for that. But what you believe to be true is a personal thing. What you believe to be true is your choice to be truth. But Christ just did these amazing proofs. Christ just performed these amazing truth statements through miracles, through things that no one else can do. This is a biblical truth. This is a salvific truth. This is a powerful truth. This is the truth. Why would people not believe this? In 2,000 years of human history, no one's been able to discredit this. Archaeology just goes on to prove this. Why don't people believe it? Well, the stories we just read actually tell us why. Because people fear it. You see, when Jesus calms the storm, we see a great fear which comes over the people. Why? Because they're about to die. The boat is filling the waves are crashing and they are sinking and there is a great fear which happens, a fear for their lives. But when Jesus calms the storm, a new fear fills their hearts. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. You see, this, new, this, this fear of this new man, this new type of man is even more terrifying to them than the precedent of death through the storm. Likewise, when a man was delivered from demons, the town people came from all around to hear and see what God has done. This monster man, this unbindable man, this man who terrorized cities like a demon monster gone wrong, has just been liberated by Jesus. But look at the response in 5, 15 through 17. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right man mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and they begged him to depart from their region. The fear of a monster in the hills was surpassed by a fear of a man who defeated the monster. 
Likewise, when the, when the woman was healed from her bleeding, even after she was healed, she answered the call of the Savior in fear. We looked at this. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. When Jairus is told that his daughter is dead, we don't see Jairus' responses, but we can have a natural, we, can, we could put those pictures together and Jesus tells us what his response is in verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Why fear? Why is that the response to this? Well, should, shouldn't we have confidence? If someone proves such a great and mighty act as Jesus proved, shouldn't we have confidence? Shouldn't we have certainty? Shouldn't we have boldness? Why fear? Why is fear the driving response to Jesus Christ? Why is fear the response to the proof claims? Why? Because if this man is Lord over the sea, Lord over Satan, and Lord over death, who am I before this God? If Jesus is who he says he is, then you are also who the Bible says you are. An enemy of God. Dead in your sin. In need of a savior. You see, the disciple, and we love signs. We want signs, right? Like all of us, well, man, we'd be like Gideon. Like, shh, man, if you want me to marry this woman, uh, just like tape her to my door in the morning. Right? We want those signs from God. We want those things. And, and the disciples and boaters who were on the lake would have loved the sign of God's power. Wouldn't that be neat? If God just like, like Elijah, like Old Testament, like, hey, send a pillar of fire to consume this wet altar. Like, that's what they wanted. They wanted a powerful sign from God, but they would have rather witnessed it from the shore. <laughs> if they could have avoided the storm, if they could have not said, hey, Jesus, would you mind waking up because we're going to die? They would have loved to have seen that from the shore. The townspeople would have loved to have seen that demon-possessed, dangerous man removed, and not only removed, but saved. But they would have rather had it not affect their livelihood as farmers. Jairus would have loved to have seen Jesus' power over death, but he probably would have rather not had to see his little daughter become sick and die. But the, the God who became flesh, the Jesus who came down into our existence, is not a Lord left to be experienced at a distance. He's not a Lord left to be witnessed from the shore. He entered into our world. He took on flesh. He entered into our troubles. Hebrews says we do not have a God who is unable to sympathize with us in every way. And he did so so that we may see that this God who is holy, other, and righteous, and pure, and opposed to sin is also a God who is near to us in holiness. That we may experience and stand near to his awesomeness as we stand before a waterfall. And you get that feeling in that avalanche creek at Glacier when you stand on that bridge that was built in like 1706 out of sticks. It's like you stand on that and you look down and you're amazed at this rushing water, but you're also terrified at it. We can stand and witness his awesomeness, but we can also stand and be near to his mercy. Why? Because Jesus has come and entered into our reality. You see, you cannot walk through this world and encounter Christ only from the shore. You don't get that option. Jesus came here. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is here. We have all witnessed the work of Christ. We've seen the signs. You all have heard the signs. Paul says in Romans that when we look at creation, we have all seen the signs. And so you're faced with two options to the proofs of Jesus. 
The first option we saw from the townspeople in Mark 5, 16 through 17. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg him to depart from their region. See, this is option one. We fear Jesus and we want nothing to do with him. We're terrified of what he means. We're terrified about what he says about ourselves. And our sinful heart, blind to true fear, choose to fear Jesus in a negative and sinful way. And this is where we all start our story. We're born sinfully and fearfully rejecting Jesus. We're born asking him to stay at a distance. We're born, as Paul says in Romans, hostile and enemies towards God. We choose to walk away. And that's the first option of fear. But the second option we see in the very next verse. I love this verse. We just saw the townspeople are begging him to leave. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had possessed with, been possessed with a demon begged that he might be with him. You see, one fear of unbelief distances us from Christ, but one fear of witnessing firsthand the awesome and saving power of Jesus Christ. We cling to him and we beg for this holy, other, big, terrifying God to be near to us in Christ Jesus in a beautiful way. Jesus is not a safe God. If you want safety, go to med school. But if you want salvation, turn to Jesus. For those of you in here who are not Christians, it's a frightening thing to fall into the hands of Jesus. It's a frightening thing to see your own sin. It's a frightening thing to know that, that you need to be reliant on the power of another. It's a frightening thing to know the cost and fallout of following Christ. But it is a far more frightening reality to be found without Christ. And in our blind hearts, we often invert those fears and fear Jesus rather than the, the, the punishment of not being with Jesus. So if that's you, trust that Jesus will respond in the same way he responded to the sick woman. That he will turn to you regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your previous life, regardless of your thoughts, and he will say to you who believe that he is able to heal, your faith has made you well. Go and be healed. Because you, like that woman, will exhaust much in your pursuit of healing. You will exhaust much in your pursuit to avoid what has been, sin has made terminal in you. You will put money and efforts and resources to avoid what you deem as death. That could be unpopularity, that could be singleness, that could be death itself, and you will pine and you will pine and you will pine towards this end. But the only person capable of saving you from your terminal state is Jesus Christ, and he is faithful, he is ready, and he is willing that all who come to him may experience his salvation. You Christians, does your holy and righteous fear of Christ shape your affections for this world? The fear of Christ, that this man who had just been, been rid from his demons, the fear of Christ drives him to be with Christ. It shapes where he lives. It shapes, like he's like, I've lived in tombs. I don't know where I'm going to live over here, but I'm going over here. It shapes where he lives. It shapes what he does. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to be with Jesus. It shapes who he's with. I'm not going to go necessarily to my friends or my family. I told them about Jesus, but I don't care about them now. I care about Jesus. Does the fear of Jesus, knowing the sheer power of his might and your salvation, shape your priorities, your affections, your friends, your career, your devotional habits, your church attendance, your worship, 
of him? Does the fear of God who saved you and the reality of the God who is on your side, the God who is Lord over the sea, who tames the untamable, who binds the unbindable, who enlivens the dead, does he give you confidence to do things you were once terrified to do? Because in light of the great fear of Jesus, we're like, ah, Jesus beat that. Jesus beat that. For what can man do to me when Christ is on my side? You Christians, labor well knowing that Christ is Lord over it all. Labor in the confidence knowing that nothing you can go through, nothing you will be presented with is outside of Christ's good ability. Nothing you will experience in your life is something that Christ has not dominated his lordship over. You see, the only way through the circumstance that you're going to be presented with, the only way through that, we will experience hardship. Right? Everybody looks at these beautiful salvation stories in the Gospel of Mark, but they, they throw away the hardship that led to that salvation. You're going to go through hardship before salvation, in salvation. But the only way to get you through that is through the one who's already been through that, Jesus Christ. He will lord you through it. I want to leave you with one quote, one you've probably heard before, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which so beautifully captures this, this fear and response in the book of Mark. So Susan starts, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion, or actually this is not Susan, this is Mr. Beaver. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion, Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's pray. Lord, you are a terrifying God. <laughs> you possess a, a holy hatred towards sin a power to do your will, the might to exact all justice in this world, and yet you are a good king. Lord, make us fear in hindsight. Make us fearful of the God who has delivered us and, and soften our fear of irrational things. Soften our fear of death and make us more fearful of an eternal damnation and a separation from God. Lord, break our hearts and win us through your power to respond to your salvation with a good fear. The fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge and peace and mission and evangelism and talking to your roommate about Jesus or reconciling wronged relationships or changing sinful habits or presenting Christ to your parents. Make us fearfully amazed at what you've done, knowing that this good and kind Savior has enabled us to do everything because he is Lord over the unpeaceable, Lord over the unbindable, and Lord over that which was once dead, breathing life into dead, sin-ridden bodies to rise up again and worship him. We love you, Jesus. Praise your name. Amen.